A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Some key takeaways or thoughts from Salim's point of view. Number one, I think this one is is contrarian. Quote unquote, data mesh works with central policy, central tooling, but federated ownership. So work to federate your infrastructure ownership, not just the data ownership. I do think that that's not something that's been kind of the standard approach for a lot of people. Number two, no matter what size of domain or line of business, look to have the same responsibilities owned by each domain. They may fall under different people, but the role they serve should look the same across the domains so that it's not, you know, you don't have to to think, okay, does this domain have the appropriate (laughs) coverage for all these different other aspects? Number three, get your roles and responsibilities established first, then look to start tackling other challenges. I don't know that that that's been the the standard approach, but I think it's kind of one of the common approaches. Number four, do your best to hide the data engineering complexity from your self-serve platform users. Help them do their job, not to learn data engineering. Focus on creating a great experience for them in their workflows. Number five, think about data risk from an opportunity standpoint. If you have strong risk controls, you can feel more comfortable giving more people wider access. You know what is allowed, so you can potentially give them access to more data than if you didn't have those tight controls. So Rita Baxt talked about that similarly in episode 52. Number six, doing federated anything right isn't about just giving people the tools or patterns or policies. You should focus on a usability layer. 
Should every team have to integrate and manage their data tools, or should they be able to focus on doing what matters? What is their experience? Number seven, design your data platform to your personas. Who's getting something done and how do they do their work? Also, always ensure your infrastructure and your governance are in sync. No one likes to manually update and patch the data catalog or even worse when it starts to drift. Number eight, discoverable data doesn't have to mean everyone can access everything by default or that access is automatically granted. I think this automatic granting of access is something that right now we don't know how to do well in data and people are getting really hung up on that. If people can find data and understand what the data is about, plus then easily request access, that is enough. Also, obviously make granting access as painless and low risk as possible. Number nine, look at users' most common actions that cause major friction and focus on tackling those, whether they really feel like part of a data platform or not. For Capital One, a few were reviewing or monitoring risk and the supporting of manually updating production data. Number 10, cost controls are a crucial but often overlooked or ignored aspect of your governance. It's very easy to overspend in the cloud, right? (laughs) Number 11, this is about a commercial offering as well. It's about Capital One's journey, but it's also about, you know, Capital One launched a new, you know, kind of aspect within their company, a new line of business of Capital One software and its first product, which is called Slingshot. They launched that after seeing how difficult it was to properly manage costs around data mesh especially given the separation of compute and storage with Snowflake. Lines of business don't typically have cloud cost managers. I was a cloud cost manager. I know this. So, you know, at Capital One, they wanted to automate the controls and cost tracking, management, forecasting as much as possible. This has been a big issue in data mesh of people getting really, really concerned about, am I going to overspend? Number 12, don't make people in the business learn exactly how to tune to prevent or rectify cost inefficiencies. Again, back to experience, give them knobs and the right questions to assess their needs so they don't have to be an expert. Number 13, cloud bill surprises are so common, it's even a meme. Build out tooling to help people forecast their costs and then track and alert against it. Don't wait until the end of the month to let someone know they're running 50% over budget. And number 14, this one might be contrarian. Your, Your central team will likely be reluctant to give up some authority, especially in deciding how infrastructure is deployed. Look to retrain, re- retrain the central teams to build self-service capabilities that create the guardrails to give them comfort, but still federate infrastructure ownership to the lines of business. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode.
apologies if there are any issues or kind of round logic jumps and things. We uh, had some audio issues and had to uh, kind of cut some of the audio. So some of it makes like it feels like there's a little bit of a jump in a couple of places. It's because the audio, we lost that. Okay, very, very excited for today's episode here. I've got uh, Salim Syed, who is the VP of Engineering at Capital One Software. And we're going to go through a lot of different things. It's going to be, I think, a very interesting story because Capital One themselves were implementing uh, Data Mesh internally. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that journey and how that that, kind of came about, what they came across. And what they were seeing was uh, something that Capital One has done actually multiple times before. They did something that was really helpful for me in managing cloud costs with uh, a service that they launched called Cloud Custodian, or not even a service, but um, they have an open source software that you can do to manage your cloud costs. And they were seeing these problems and said, hey, we think this is something that's actually going to be a problem for a lot of folks. And so they've created kind of their own offering around uh, managing some of the infrastructure and especially, you know, some of the cost aspects as well of that. So very excited to jump into that. But before we get into that, uh, Salim, if you don't mind, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Absolutely, Scott. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me here. Um, So yeah, my name is Salim Sayed. I'm the head of engineering for Capital One Software's Slingshot product. And uh, I've been with Capital One for a little over seven years now. My career has been, you know, right from college, starting with the data engineering to DBA to database architect to data architect, and then leading enterprise data analytics team uh, for the last couple of years. And now um, we are building a software that bringing to market and I'm leading the engineering for that organization. Awesome. So I I think um, it would make a lot of sense to talk about your journey, right? Like everybody is kind of going through this or not everybody, but a lot of folks are going through data mesh and they're trying to figure out how do I get this this going? So let's talk about um, kind of what changes you had to go through to get into a good place, right? We can talk about right. what changed first, what changed uh, together, what maybe some even some some steps that you took where you say, hey, if we could go back, if you had your druthers, you'd go back and change some of the things, all of that. So um, you know, kind of open open ended question, but. Uh, Within that kind of, is, is there a good place where you think that when you're talking to people about their own journey, where you'd say, hey, this is a good place to start? That, that's a great question, uh, Scott, because, you know, one thing I tell people is that, you know, you can't, you know, solve this problem just by technology alone, right? Uh, one of the first things that we had to do was break our lines of businesses into discrete organization and then uh, units of data responsibility with hierarchy. And uh, we didn't force the same hierarchy at every for every single lines of businesses. Larger lines of businesses had you know, three, sometimes four levels, where smaller ones could do with only one. And then you know, the next thing we did was figure out, come up with a define a common enterprise standard for metadata curation. This was a learning for us, like, like not all data are created equal. Of course, as a bank, you know, we always need to know where is all of our data, which of the data is sensitive, and who's responsible for it, right? But think about it, you know, data that's used in a regular report 
is very different than data that's, you know, in uh, um, a user's sandbox or a staging table. So we made sure our metadata policies reflected that reality. Same thing with um, data quality, for example, right? We, 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 we made sure that the data quality rules were different depending on the importance of the data. Uh, so think about any data that was published into a into a mesh or a shared repository had to have you know schema uh, conformance or and completeness of data. But we also gave our lines of business additional data quality checks they could do uh, for important data sets, right? Based on imagine uh, FICO score, so we we could have a data quality rule around ranges, for example, right? But you know. The other thing, before I get into the solution, is uh, early on we realized this is what we used to do before. Every data set had a, its own entitlement, and this was a very hard thing for our analysts to get access. They had to request access; could take days, right, to get access to a certain data set. And so then they had to start the whole process of requesting access again. So what we've done is we've made sure that. Our entitlements are now comprised of your business org, data product, and sensitivity. The combination of these three you could re- uh, is what we based our uh, entitlements on. So now if, uh, if a, data produ- a data analyst wants to get access to all they have access to data, all they have to do is request access for a particular data product, which is, again, a, a group of related data sets and the sensitivity, right? Uh, so if they if they are don't care about sensitive data, they can just request that access and they have all that access at the same time and they don't have to go back and forth, right? I mean, I just rattled off a lot of different things. We, we you know, look into it. But the important piece that I want to mention here is that, you know, it's hard to remember all the steps you have to do, all the, all the rules. So it, it's really important to put a usability layer and make it very easy for your data, you know, practitioners to interact with. And we'll talk more about that. It, it, it's a key part is that usability layer, right? So one word I want to circle back on that you you said a lot when you were talking about roles was risk, right? You 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 were talking about risk first, and um, to me, part of doing data mesh is being risk averse in certain ways, but it's not being, uh, or it's it's being taking calculated risks. And there is, you know, there is places where you need to be risk averse in don't, uh, don't give access to sensitive data, (laughs) you know, don't run afoul of your uh, regulators and be in compliance. And so I, how did you think about that kind of mitigating that risk, you know, kind of the, the CYA, the cover your butt type of, of aspect of it? when you are a bank, right? Like Sarita Baxt, when she was on from JP Morgan Chase, was talking about, we don't give access to any data products essentially by default. You can see what's in them. You might be able to get kind of a sample that has been pre-approved as to this isn't going to contain anything sensitive or it's dummy data or things like that. Right. But that within a bank, you but you can still get that quick access. And, and I would say, you know, you were saying it, it could take a couple of weeks there's a lot of other organizations where it takes six to nine months to get access to data. So a couple of weeks, you were already uh, pretty good. But I, I'd like to talk about why risk was so important and, and 
how you thought about that and not not throwing risk to the wind, not pretending like data governance doesn't matter. Oh, no, it's the opposite, right? Data governance is is really important. And as a bank, right, I mean, we are, we've always been a company that manages risk and risk is a really important factor. So everything we've defined here, you know, you, you need to understand the risk associated with the decisions you're making. And then you need to, you know, apply the right controls, the right monitoring, the right audits in place that, that you know, you feel can mitigate that risk, right? So it's not like you're going to, uh, you know, give, stop giving access to people that need the data. You just have to do it in the right way, have the right controls in place, uh, right access policies, right people who are approving the risk. And, and then you have second line, uh, you know, associates who are risk associates who are also monitoring. So monitoring is a big piece that you set the right policy, set the right guardrails, but have the monitoring place to make sure that, uh, you know, the risks that you've taken are are, are appropriately being uh, monitored as well. And I don't think that's necessary for a lot of organizations, but for a bank, <laughs> for financial institutions, it is. But I think it's kind of what you were talking about as well earlier of these are responsibilities, not necessarily roles, right? Of, hey, this is something that that is part of your day-to-day job because you understand the data very well. And so we're going to teach you how to assess risk and how to, to look at that. And if you need a backdrop, there's the kind of risk and compliance centralized team to, to go back. But like, you know the data and you go, okay, um, this is marked as sensitive, but it's only sensitive because of this one reason. And, you know, it it wouldn't be like, okay, we're going to give credit card numbers or we're going to give social security numbers, but it might be that the date of transaction could actually be um, something that has risk to it if there's a certain size, because you could back into who that was based on the size and the date or something like that. So somebody that's really on the the front line can understand that. But I, I, I like that you're saying we put in, you didn't just have the technology in place and say the technology will take care of it. We also had human checks, right? And you probably have some AI checks and that stuff, but you've got the monitoring. Right. And-, and and you also do have sometimes, um, sometimes some training. So uh, to get access to a certain data set, you have to get some training so you know how to handle those data sets, right? So we we also make that part of our approval process. So if you're getting access to some sensitive data, you have to uh, undertake certain training as well in order to get access to the data, right? So that, that that's another control that you add to mitigate the risk, right, as well. Yeah, and, and at some point, I'm going to talk with some folks on future episodes about ethics as well, but I think there should be training around ethics as to, okay, you're getting access yes. to very sensitive data, but it's it's we're still early days in really figuring that out. When we talk about ethics, it's typically like bias, and it's like, no, like you can do sh- some shady things. So let's, let's make sure everybody is above board, and we, we tell you, be above board, be, do this. So, um, but uh, so... You were kind of 
starting down your journey, like let's talk about that kind of theory to implementation, right? You know, a lot of people, they, they read Jamak's book or, and things and they're like, okay, how do I actually take this and apply it to my organization? What, what is going to work? What should I save for later? You know, how should I thin slice my, my MVP, whatever that P means, if that's product or platform or <laughs> minimum viable mesh or whatever, like, how did you start to look at taking this from this is where we want to go like this is where we want to be in five years versus okay journey of of, of five years journey of a thousand miles what are our first steps <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's really been a journey right sometimes you don't know the end until you realize you have to come to that realization and you know for us like everything i explained to you our concept of federation, right? Giving more ownership to the lines of business to manage their uh, data and governance. But, you know, we, we went on premise from a, a centrally managed data and governance to first we went, when we went to the cloud, it was a federated ownership. But we also realized that, you know, when you give the lines of business, all the policies, all the, you know, um, the patterns, architectural patterns, that is just not enough. You know, most people want to do the vast majority of people want to do the right thing. They want to be a good corporate steward, right? But they're just they're just very confused because it's they don't know how to, because there are just way too many tools out there, way too many teams to talk to to do simple things. And um, and that's when we realized that you know to make Federated data management easy is is by providing teams a usability layer for them to do their work right and and the usability layer is oriented not in terms of capabilities like catalog or data quality or ETL tool or lineage but for the jobs to be done right so think about publishing a new data product or find and start using a data product or protect sensitive data, or reconcile your billing, you know, things like that. Like, what are you supposed to do? And, and focus on that. Uh, and, and we've seen a huge difference, in, you know, in, in the past, with, you know, rather than having to go through six or seven different tools to publish a new data product, our data publishers can now go through this, complete the simple workflow, right, in the usability layer. It guides them through the process. And and the usability layer then uses their uh, connects to the orchestration layer, which handles updating all the various subsystems required for publishing, like register data in, in your catalog, uh, do your data quality checks, capture lineage, scan for sensitive data, clear text sensitive. So all that happens in the background, right? And it even goes all the way down to your infrastructure layer by creating automatically provisioning your data resources, like creating a table or an S3 bucket or, or S3 object. And then, you know, obviously all your entitlements classification is also taken care of. You know, that is called simplification of, of the job. And we made that. And there are two things you have to keep in mind here, right? One is you need to design it for the persona who's getting something done instead of tools. And the second is you have to ensure your data infrastructure and your governance are always in sync. So, for example, if your data 
adds new columns and your metadata registration catalog doesn't reflect that. A lot of companies have that problem that the, the drift happens and then you, you've lost it by then. So you've got to ensure that, that, that those are always in sync. Yeah. And I think what you were saying there, um, especially about the jobs to be done, this is something that when, when the self-service platform piece is brought up, a lot of people are thinking that there's, um, that it means something very different than I think what Jamak has, has, uh, mentioned, but a lot of the people that are kind of further down their journey have really seen. And they think that it's all about the data aspect of it versus that jobs to be done, right? Mm -hmm. Like you think about who you're asking and most organizations are asking that it is more the software engineering side to do this. And with software engineers, you have to be in their ways of working. So you're not, you know, uh, I, I, I've railed against YAMLs. I, I love YAMLs when it comes to the actual like data side, because that's how data people work. But you you put a YAML in front of uh, you know a general software engineer, and they're going to look at you like if they know what it is, they're going to look at you with a, a, a you know not a happy look. And if they don't know, they're, they're like, "What is this? You're you're asking me to fill out a text file for this? Thing? Like, why can't this be in my console? Why can't I do this thing?" Right. And so. Um, I think that that is a really important point that you were you were that you even kept circling back on throughout. Of its usability isn't that you can use the infrastructure; it's that you can do what you want to do <laughs> instead yeah, of right. having to care about the infrastructure. I don't care whether you're using X or Y or Z technology or approach or anything in the background. I'd have to know what is this going to mean for me. And what do I not have to care about, right? Like, I, I don't right. care That's when right. I go and, and log into my my uh, bank. I don't care what they're using for their two-factor authentication. I don't care, right? Like, I don't care what what's the, the background processes. I care that I want to sign in and feel like there's some security there. I know some two-factor authentication can sometimes be, you know, security theater, but at least it makes me feel a little better. So, like... <laughs> Yeah, I think that yeah. what like what what did you find when you were talking to people about that? About like the usability was it something that you knew from the start or was it something that kept emerging more and more of like just let us do the thing that we need to do? Like how did that work? No, this really I mean we did a, a lot of study, right? We we talked to our our data practitioners and we we try to understand what their pain points are. And you have to understand, these are not software engineers or even data engineers. They're your data analysts, data scientists, business analysts, and you know, the data stewards or data owners. And, and we, our goal was, what we realized was that you have to make it easy for them to get their job done. That means hide the complexity of data engineering, the data stitching, integration work that happens behind the scene so that all they're doing is following a workflow and um, and and you're taking care of all the data integration piece, data governance piece, as well as uh, provisioning of infrastructure, right? Uh, Otherwise, they end up going to way too many people, and to way too many teams, and it's just a bureaucratic, you know, nightmare. To be honest, when Jesse Anderson was on, he talked about he had done a study and the amount of time of work 
between if you are doing something uh, in your team and going outside of the team for anything, it's 12x. 12x the second it goes outside of your boundaries. Like it's, yeah. it's so insane. Yeah. I mean, I, I worked in startups before. I mean, you in small companies, you can just tap the shoulder of your coworker. You used to be able to and say, can I use this? What data should I use? And they would say, use this table and you're done. And not, it doesn't work in the cloud when you have thousands of data sets across different lines of businesses. And, and um, you know, you, you just need a way to discover, find relevant data very easily. Uh, and then the next challenge is you have to be able to trust it, right? So a lot of people are doing things like uh, sample data, mass data. So you get to see it before you request access. You get to see the you know data quality results, uh, data profiles, like standard deviation, min, max of different fields, anything like to be able to, for you to be able to trust and know that this data is relevant for your work. Uh and then in the same experience, you should be able to request access to the data or to the data product. And uh, and that's what we've built, this, this data discoverability layer for the consumers to find data, to trust data, and to request access. And behind the scene, we will route the request to the owner of the data who's created the uh, policies and, and, and the entitlements. And they get to you know review your business justification and based on um, the sensitivity of the data, we will automatically ask them to, you know, take a class, for example, <laughs> before they can get it. So we make the life of even the person who's going to approve the data much easier. So they don't have to remember all, all, all the things they have to do, right, as well. So that's the key, right? You, you don't expect everyone to remember all the policy and you have to bake it into the tool as well. I mean, it's like developers, they talk about how many functions or how many whatever's do you memorize by heart or how many times you search on the internet and be like, how do I do this one little thing versus I'm applying these principles. So, And, and if I've got a question, I know where to go. But a lot of cases I, I know, hey, no, that that is not an allowed <laughs> use or yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's totally OK. Like it doesn't make any difference. And, and yeah, and Sarita Bax that at JP Morgan Chase had talked about this, too of your data producers will be more willing to share more data in their data products if they can say, what are people going to use it for, right? If you're trying to share everything for everybody, then you have you know your minimum um, surface area from a risk standpoint, because if everybody can have access to it, I can't really share much versus I can have this thing in there and no, that's not compliant use. And I can say that, or let's work with you to get it to compliant use or, or ethical use or whatever. And, and let's have that conversation or exactly what you talked about as well of like, this person has certified that they, they will take care of this, like that I'm not worried about this and that, you know, so I, I think that's, that's really interesting to kind of think about what was that like your your plan from the start or was it something that you iterated toward from like trying a couple of different things and it, it wasn't going like exactly how you wanted or well i'd like to say it was planned from the start but that won't be true <laughs> you know <laughs> it's always learning right you always try something you learn and you get to the uh a more perfect place right and that's what we had to do as well uh another piece that we realize was missing from both the producer model and the consumer model is 
an experience for risk uh, risk reviewers, for examples, or uh, folks who will create the ru- ro- uh, rules of the road for uh, for your governance. So we have now added a risk manager experience where they go and define all the rules of the road that data producers and consumers have to follow. And automatically our, you know, self-service tooling will ensure that those rules are being applied, right? When when somebody requests access, for example, or when someone's trying to publish a data set, automatically they will know the questions will come up based on, uh, you know, the sensitivity of the data or the importance of the data, the right things have to be applied. Uh, so the, the, those are some things we've done. We've also realize that you know with CCPA uh, there's a huge need for you know to remediate your data right meaning there's got to be a way to with proper control with proper approval workflow with proper auditability to modify production data sets whether it's uh, you know an, a citizen asking for their data to be removed Anytime you do changes to production data, it's it's been a very manual process. It's, you know, you open a change order, you have a support ticket, you go manually change things. And that was another piece where we invested to create an experience. So, um, it, like I said, I, I go back to experience all the time, right? W- w- what are the main experiences in your organization that, you know, from different personas do, you know, and, and try to address that and connect it to the rest of the ecosystem. And that's how we kind of created our mesh, you know, uh, with, with the principle that of data mesh. It's, it's funny. There was a, a, a webinar last year with um, Emily Gorsinski and, and I think maybe Jamac from, from uh, you know, when Jamac was still at ThoughtWorks and they were talking about like at one of their clients, they actually created, uh, you know, CCPA is like GDPR, but for, um, you know, California, yeah. but the, uh, they created a GDPR request data product. And so every other data product could check against this data product. And so it would keep, you know, as soon as somebody clicked on unsubscribe, every other data product could, could, um, could check against, do we have any of this data in our thing? Like, let's, let's look at what are the, the key, um, differentiators and say, do we have any of this in any of our stuff? And so it made it so people could feel like, oh, we've scrubbed out our data. And then, you know, it, it, um, it was something that like all of the data products were also consuming from because all the other data products, because it was just like, oh, I have one stop shop. Like you can rethink mm-hmm. how you would even do your business where that's like such a random thing to think about of I'm going to have a data set that is a disappearing data set because it's people who are telling us that we have to delete this data. Right. And that's where I think capturing lineage became even more important so that, you know, if you're, if you, your record is moving from one data set to another, to another, there's gotta be a capture. You have to capture that lineage. So, you know, when the request comes to remove your information, we know exactly where you are, you know, what are all the places your records are. So, we can we can take action. Yeah, that makes sense. And so when we were talking about in the pre-call, you had kind of your this four things that you were talking about. You know, we were talking about the experience and all this. You talked about you had kind of 
four things that you've really got to build out well. And, and I think I got it right uh, down correctly, but it was like publishing, consumption, governance, and the infrastructure. So let's let's talk a little bit about kind of how you how you think about this experience and how you think about the personas and, and that and how that all kind of shaped into where you wanted to go, right? <laughs> like what you wanted to do right. with all of this. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think I've touched upon a few of these experiences in your prior questions, but you know, but you're right. You know, think about the producer experience. This is a persona like a data producer owner who wants to publish a new data product to Snowflake, for example. Right? Uh, then you have a persona in the data consumer side who want who want to discover, evaluate, and then get access to the right data product. And then the risk manager is a persona where you're defining and enforcing and monitoring your data protection policies. And then lastly, it's the business data platform owner, right? For example, managing the Snowflake infrastructure provisioning and the cost, all of that. Uh, all, all four are really important to build experience around. And um, I've talked about the data producer experience. I've talked about data consumer and data risk uh, risk manager experience. Uh, what I haven't mentioned is the fact that infrastructure, uh, spe specifically data infrastructure, is another big component, right, of federation. Uh, this has also been historically uh, enterprise data warehouses, enterprise data lakes. It's been a central team managing the infrastructure of, of your data platform. Uh, one of the things that we did was, and again, it follows your data mesh principle of federating the infrastructure to the, to the lines of business as well. But the, the trick here is that, you know, you can't expect that they, the lines of businesses will have that same level of expertise uh, to manage infrastructure as a, as a dedicated uh, database uh, team does. So, so what we did was we built these self-service uh, tooling and experience that empowers the lines of business to manage their own data infrastructure while making sure that the best practices of a DBA, the guardrails, the cost controls are built into the, that tool. So you can't do too many um, bad things, right? That's going to, uh, or bad things that's going to, encourage inefficient use of your data platform that and that obviously will increase the cost significantly especially um, in the cloud where you have un, um, unlimited compute unlimited storage and uh, if you don't have proper governance uh, cost controls and visibility into how you're using it you could end up spending way too much money more than you ever thought possible. Uh, and um, and that's that's exactly what our tooling does is, you know, makes it, one, it makes it very easy to provision new resources with proper controls and uh, governance and cost control. And then also provides the visibility into, you know, how efficiently you're using your data platform. And specific for us, it was Snowflake. Snowflake is our enterprise data warehouse. It has unlimited compute, unlimited storage. So we we built a tool called Slingshot, uh, which helps you know helped us save over twenty seven percent of our Snowflake cost 
it saved over 55,000 hours of manual, you know, data platform changes that we used to do, um, reduced our cost per query by 43%. And now we're actually bringing this, this tool that allows you to manage your Snowflake infrastructure uh, to the market, right? And, and this is the product called Slingshot. And this is Capital One's first, uh, you know, product in under their uh, a new line of business which is capital one software which i'm part of right it's it's funny because i think um there are kind of three or four banks that are offering certain things around data mesh but to me this is one that that hits home because you you mentioned the cost controls uh, but the visibility to me when i worked you know i was a, a, a cloud cost manager, right? Like I, I managed all of the spend for a public company on AWS. And it was, you know, it was, uh, I want to say, like, in total, it was like 12% of the budget or something like that. It was it was an astronomical amount of the entire um, or 12% of revenue or something like that. It was it was it was a huge, huge uh, chunk. And it was the vast majority of our IT spend, um, or, or at least uh, from an infrastructure standpoint. And when you're talking about visibility, visibility, I, I'd say that finance people hate the, the top three things that the you know CFO organization hate is surprises, surprises, and surprises. <laughs> and then number four is spending too much money, right? And so you do want to clamp down on that, but you also want to understand and and like when you're talking to somebody about what you're going to try and put into production, right? You're going to try and put this data product into production. And and they're saying, well, this is how much value we think we're going to get out of it. Being able to, you know, maybe not get exactly the costs, but being able to see like, hey, we're going to test this out. We're going to see what this looks like at significant scale. Or, or uh, I'm trying to remember who said it um, on one of the episodes uh, more recently, but they were saying like, oh, it was Brandon Bidell at Red Ventures. And he was saying, hey, if this goes right, what are our costs going to look like? Is our, our unit economics all of a sudden, if, we, if this 10, you know, 15 Xs, if it's not scale out, if it's scale up, then your costs go up at a non-linear <laughs> rate. And so, and your value probably is sublinear as well. And so your, your incremental value can go negative pretty quickly on those things. So how did you think about that visibility and and yes you know everybody wants to be at 100% utilization it, it never happens it's never sensible it's never you know especially when you think about not having any headroom for <laughs> if things do have to go past 100% of where you are then you're uh you know some cloud things can scale up but a lot can't uh that easily so how did you think about that visibility aspect was it something where that it was that you were like hey the costs are getting out of control. Let's let's get those under control, and or the costs are higher than we think they should be, and we want to then check that. Or was it kind of the opposite way? And how, how do you think when you're talking to organizations about that? Right, like yeah. what, what does visibility mean for them? That's a really good question. And the other thing I want to I want to add to what you said, Scott, about what what CFOs um, hate around cost is the unpredictability, right, of cost. And uh, when you have unlimited, you know, compute and storage, 
it's just it's when you have a consumption cost based on consumption model, it's very hard to predict what the cost is going to be. So for us, you know what I what I've learned overseeing our six thousand plus analyst community, you know, use our on prem data center, uh, data warehouse, and all is there is a lot of wastage in the way people use it, right? Data. And and not everyone's going to be an expert. So for us, it was really about identifying and provide visibility into the inefficiencies that were in the system. Because when you're when you need to do an analysis that requires a certain number of CPU to get in a certain number of hours you need to do something, that's important. That's business. That there's a business value to it. But if you're not using the system efficiently, and if there and if we can show you why you're how you're not using it efficiently, and not just show you, but alert you in near real time so that you don't realize that you made a inefficient query or inefficient configuration a month after when you've already spent a, a bunch of money. So give so it was very important for us to give you feedback in near real time, plus give you the recommendation on the specific action you can take to be more efficient, right? Whether it's about rewriting a certain query or whether it's uh, changing the size of your compute at different time of the day. All of this was very important to give a real-time feedback. Um, and it's through learning, right? We've seen a bad query run for days and nobody knew about it, right? And 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 you get the bill and you realize, oh my God, <laughs> I, I wish I had known this was this even was running behind the scene. And uh, in the past, in, in in the past, it didn't matter when you had a bad query running for days. Uh, you didn't pay extra money. You had a fixed license cost. Uh, but the worst that could happen was the DBA would come and slap on your wrist. Say, you ran a bad query that was affecting other, if it was really that bad. But the cost was nothing. There was no implication to cost. But in this new world, it's got a profound cost implication. And um, so, and that's where our focus was, right? When you ask about visibility, it's visibility into the inefficiencies was the key, right? How much when you're going and, and talking to people or how much even internally when you were thinking about this is um, proactive versus reactive? Because when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about we <laughs> we were trying to we were launching this big product or project or whatever, um, you know, a new big offering. And one estimate came in as zero incremental dollars. One estimate came in at, you know multi-millions and it was like, you know, it, it would have been um, uh, like 20% or 30% incremental cost just for this one thing. Um, and so like trying to go back and forth, how much are you seeing it as people are using it as reactive and kind of preventative or, or that kind of fast thing versus, hey, you want this SLA that's going to cost us X percent more. Or, hey, you know, you are running this query. This query is valuable to us, but you're running it at such a speed that it's not, it's it's probably more efficient if we do it this way or if we do it in, uh, you know, via batch or if we do, um, you know, uh, 
or, or reading off right. the stream. So it's just the incremental tra- transformation or whatever of X or Y or Z. Are you seeing that at the start, people are kind of using it as reactive and using it that way and that you're hoping it goes to proactive? Or are you seeing kind of the proactive come about? That's a great question. And I think the way we've designed our system is proactive first. And then wherever the gaps are, if things are falling off the gap, that's where you have to be reactive. So let me give you an example. So when you're provisioning a new compute, Snowflake compute in our tool, we will ask you a bunch of proactive questions that will make you think hard of what the uh, cost would be uh, and what controls you can put in. For example, what is the max time your query should run in your compute? You know, that's a proactive. Or you can set a policy that says, hey, if, if this compute is for a dev environment, don't allow anything more than a small size. Right. These are you don't need extra large, you know, a compute that costs hundreds of dollars an hour, you know, for a dev environment like these proactive things you set early on and that and we also give you a estimated cost. And so you have a very good idea what's the max cost you will uh, allocate based on the decisions you made. But on the proactive side, uh, so the reactive side is there still could be efficiency inefficiencies in the way you use it later. And for that. It's just, we have to keep monitoring. You cannot, you have to be relentless about monitoring. You cannot stop. (laughs) It's always new use cases are coming. And with new use cases, new inefficiencies can come. So you always have to be monitoring and alerting and giving recommendations to that. Uh, You know, so it's a combination of both is needed, I think. Well, and... and Use cases change and, you know, usage changed. And, and historically, what we haven't had is a good way of saying this thing's no longer used, right? This thing right. is no longer. <laughs> and so like that cleanup, you know, somebody, again, who's managing AWS costs, it was like, hey, is this thing still used? Hey, is this thing still used? And and like checking in with, with people and, um, you know, we had this this big issue where and nobody would let me delete them, even though it would have saved us, you know, many hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but uh, where we had incorrectly written our queries. And so it was only doing read and writes from, you know, we had a, a read replica and it was only doing reads and writes from the, you know, the the leader and not the, the follower. And so it was like, oh, okay, um, why do we have all these followers that are there that the read replicas aren't actually getting any queries? <laughs> they're, they're barely getting the rights and they're, they're never getting any reads. So why do we even have these? And I think that um, getting that into people's heads even is, is really important. Are, are you seeing when you are talking about this, like, is it that the, a line of business first starts with, okay, let's get our arms around this? Like, how does this evolve? And like, how do you think about how somebody, you know, whether they're using Slingshot or they're using, you know, they're building something themselves, how do you think about that conversation as to, hey, Domain, we're going to hand this over to you. We're going to give you the capabilities to actually do it. But like, where do they start? Where should people start? Because, you know, you're obviously further down the, the, the path than other people that are kind of earlier on. What, what have you learned around that that you think would be helpful in talking to them? 
it, it, it's a good question. Um, I'm just trying to figure out the right way to say it. The one of the things we're learning is that most organizations are very still very reluctant to hand over the responsibility to the lines of business. You know, uh, so so one of the things that we've the way we've designed Slingshot is that you get to a centralized team get to create the rules of the road, you know, how much you can use, what are the uh, controls you want to put in. But then we also allow each line of business within the tool to do further uh, controls they can add, right? That way, the central team still has some authority in, in, in deciding what the, what the cost controls would be, what the insights, what the recommendations they should be receiving. Uh, and then, and it's a journey, right? And then they will, I feel that the central teams could then start slowly f- trusting the lines of businesses, right? And they've, pro- pro- they've, pro- they've add, provided enough controls and guardrails to then give it to the line of business to manage their own. And then you will see more and as trust happens more and more, line of businesses are going to start learning. And it's also a journey, right? You, you don't become an expert because this is not your primary job to be a cost specialist or a database expert. Uh, but as long as we provide you the right, you know, uh, guardrails and the visibility and the recommendations, I think this is going to be something that will 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 give the trust to the lines of businesses to manage their own data platform, right? That's the idea is that I'm not doing anything inefficient, right? As long as they have that um, and the results you can see, it, it you can see your cost once you use the tool, it becomes very predictable. And, and, and the fluctuation cost from month to month goes down mm-hmm. because, because we've identified the inefficiencies and it's, it's really the work that's that's needed for business right that's happening so one thing that i would say that kind of came to mind was like trust but verify was kind of what you were talking about and <laughs> right. then um trust trust is a lot like rome it wasn't built in a day but it sure can be burned in a day um but one one question that i i would have then is are you seeing that this leads to faster development cycles because people do have better idea around the costs, right? Or or are you seeing that people feel more free to do more things, try more things? Are you seeing like kind of maybe even higher risk taking, not in the compliance risk, but in the, we don't know if this is going to work out, but we can at least measure what it costs and we're going to try and measure <laughs> what our output is. And so you get a little bit more experimentation or what, what are you seeing? I mean, I know it's still early days from the, the, the external aspect of, you know, selling it to others, but maybe even internally, did you think that that changed the way people approached working with data? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I mean, on the external piece, it's too early to know, but internally, you know, what we've seen is that it actually created an explosion of new use cases because once once the leaders understood that cost was predictable and you could find out the cost before you even started your project, uh, we've seen over 450 new use cases on Snowflake 
even though we've reduced 27% of the cost, just because, you know, I mean, there's a lot to do with it. I would say cost predictability was one, but also, like you said, the ease of provisioning new compute and new uh, infrastructure was a few clicks away, right? That just wasn't possible in the old days when you couldn't get an upgrade done. You know, it took six months to plan for a major data warehouse upgrade in the old days on-premise. And now you can get any resource you need to do your business and it's, it's quick. And um, yeah, so for both reasons, the, the, the fact that there's right controls in place and guardrails in place and the ability to provision as fast as you need it, like you'll see an explosion of uh, new use cases, um, which eventually helps the business, right? Because it just provides uh, tremendous insight <laughs> into your business and creates new products. All of that comes from uh, that innovation. To be, I mean, you know, what, uh, to me, I'm agnostic whether they use Capital One or they build it themselves or whatever, you know, but I think exactly what you're talking about of letting people, removing these friction points, removing these, these challenges is so important. And so it's, it's, this story is, is very exciting because there are these hidden friction points that people don't talk about where the cost and the time to, to kind of play and the time to like uh, test things out and and get that fast feedback where you don't have to invest nearly as much. Um, people can now see this is actually how much we're investing into trying this out, and you can you can get that that space. So yes, um, I want to be cognizant of time. So um, is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to, or any way you'd want to kind of wrap up the episode? No, I just, I, I still feel, you know, when we, when we talk to companies, it's it, this mindset of centrally managing your data platform, even though when you go to the cloud, uh, to me, it, it, this is going to take a lot, a, a little bit of time for companies to understand that once you move to the cloud, you know, there's going to be an explosion of data set, the variety of data sets. And a central team will just not have the expertise to manage all that data, right? So it's going to be very important for companies to really think about data mesh and think about the federated ownership. Uh, and uh, in our experience, data mesh works with central policy, central tooling, but federated ownership. Yeah, I, I think that building out the capabilities, but fettering out or federating out more and more of the responsibility, responsibility. around the capabilities. Yeah. That, that's something people aren't talking about. So I'm appreciating the, the perspective. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you. Where's kind of the best place to do that? What, I mean, obviously you're offering <laughs> a solution. <laughs> so if they're interested in that, but what's the best place for people to follow up? What would you like them following up about? Yeah, I mean, you can go to CapitalOne.com slash software. Uh, not only can you find about our product Slingshot to manage your Snowflake infrastructure, but you, you can find tons of blogs, uh, white papers, uh, articles on data mesh, on data governance, data management. And either way, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of useful information. You know, we've gone through a journey and, and, we, and we've learned it 
at a, a lot of things in a very hard way. And uh, hopefully it will, you know, it will educate people on, uh, you know, what are the things that you should do and what are the pitfalls you want to avoid in this journey? So it should be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Salim, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, really enjoyed it. And thank you as well, everyone out there for listening. Thank you. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Salim Syed, VP of Engineering at Capital One Software. You can find a link to his LinkedIn and the Capital One Software website, as well as a blog post in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of Throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.